You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. As you know, we're, we're continuing our series in Colossians, The Supremacy of Christ Leads to Supreme Living. Last week, we began to look like what that means, what does supreme living look like in the form of holiness. And as we talked about holiness, we first understood that we must gaze upon the person and work of Christ. We need to look at what he's, has, what he's done for us. He has died with us. He has rose and ascended for us. And as we fix our eyes, as we set our eyes on that, we're reminded that our sins have been dealt with, that we are forgiven, that we have, because he's raised, we've been given new life, and that we have, uh, we have freedom and, and power to, to defeat sin and to live in a way that is holy. But that work takes place in our union with Christ, this vital living union that we have with the living God. This morning's passage now looks, at, looks in practical ways how our union with Jesus is to be applied in our daily life and deals with some very personal heart issues from how we talk to one another and how we handle ourselves sexually. I love how one has explained this union. In short, the apostle teaches that the Christian experience in Christ caused not simply for regulating the old earthbound life, but for digging out its roots and utterly destroying it. In this way, the new life in Christ will have full control over the believer. Or may say it this way, let the life that now resides in you in virtue in your union with Christ work itself out, express itself in thoughts, words, and relationships and situations that are good, holy, righteous. See, this is our supreme reality, but we know that it's not fully yet realized in our experience. As one has said, and as I even think as, that he was sharing about the many nations that are represented here and the many nations that are represented in the ESL, we are like those. We are like those immigrants to a new country, those who are in Christ, not yet completely know the way of life, but we have accepted the citizenship in a new world, but we must learn to live in it. We find ourselves in Christ, and we must learn to live in it. So this morning's passage, God encourages us that because we have this real vital union with him, we're able to put off this old life of idol-making and focuses on the life of what it means to die with Christ. So follow along as I read from Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covenantness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have putting on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all, and in all. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, as we gather around your word this morning, Lord, you're getting personal. Paul is getting personal with the church. And so, Father, we pray that as we, as we look at this word, the Holy Spirit, that you would remind us of who we are in Christ, remind us of what you're calling us to be in Christ, and helping us to remember that we have what we need to reflect Christ into the world in which we live. We have all the resources to fight the battle that rages war within us. So do that work of grace, we pray this morning. Amen. Just say that I was a medical doctor in Africa. And I had a good friend, Jim, who wanted to, to spend some time with me in Africa to, to see what I was doing there as it pertains to helping people in Africa. But I said, before that you can come to Africa, you need to, you need to get some shots in order for you to come over. These are the shots I recommend for you to get. Well, my friend Jim considers that, but he decides not to get the shots. Three months later, I'm looking at him, and he's looking up at me facing death. Who's responsible for his potential death? Was it me because I did not force him to get the shots? Was it the doctors and pharmacists um, price gouging the, the medicine? Or was it the mosquitoes? Many of us will say, of course not. It wasn't any of those fault. He was informed and warned. He clearly knew what he needed to do in order to prevent getting malaria, but he chose not to. Now, he may have chose not to because of the cost, or he was fear of the shots, or that it was inconvenient for him to schedule an appointment. Either way, he had no one to blame but himself, and his decision could cost him his life. In a similar way, God, through this letter, through Paul, makes it very clear for us how to defeat sin and to live holy. Dealing with our sin is costly, for it will take much time and effort, empowered by the Spirit of Christ, but the alternative is spiritual ruin. Because we have this living, vital union with Christ, our pursuit of holiness must include putting off the old life of idol-making. So as we look at this this morning, this will include honestly dealing with our old self, hearing hard truth, and finding hope. Let's first look at how we must honestly deal with our old self. Paul uses very graphic terms in this passage to show us our responsibility to live out our union with Christ. In fact, Paul reiterates virtually all of the Ten Commandments so that to leave no one guessing of what our loving and holy Father desires of us. Because we have died with Christ, we are now charged to make his death to the old life a daily experience. So let's begin by answering a question. What does our old life, our earthly nature, what is it? Where well, the earthly nature, our old life, is the flesh, the sinful nature, the old self, right? We have this old self and we have this new self if you're in Christ, right? It is, this old self is the flesh, which is, which is opposite of the life of a Christian that we have now in Christ. Now, if we're honest, right, there's a tension for us as Christians. 
We are this new creation, united with Christ. We have died with Christ. All of our sins, past, present, and future, have been dealt with, and we have been raised with Christ. While at the same time, we live in a world where temptation for sin continues to exist, that our sinful nature, nature is still active and wants to respond to those temptations. Our, our own nature, our flesh, is not dormant. Yes, the believer is dead to the, to the world with Christ, who has nailed our sins, all of our sins, to the cross, and we have been liberated from our sin because we're in Christ. But on the other hand, we are still in this world with the old flesh exposed to the temptation of sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are in a war. I love how, how Pogo, an animal comic strip that began in the 40s, once said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. You have met the enemy, and he is us. He is you. I love how Chris Lungard shares this with his, in his book, The Enemy Within. Straight talk about, our pow about the power and defeat of sin. It's a book based on the works of the Puritan John Owen. He says this, The flesh hates everything about God. Since it resists everything about God, it, raised, it resists every way we try to taste God and to know God and to love God. The more something enables us to find God and feast on him, the more violently, listen, the flesh fights against it. It takes its battle to every quarter of the soul. When the mind wants to know God, the flesh imposes ignorance, darkness, error, and trivial thoughts. The will can't move towards God without feeding the weight of stubbornness, holding it back. And the affections longing to long for God are constantly fighting the infection of sensuality or the disease of indifference. With that in mind, Paul tells us two things in verses 5 and verse 8 and how to deal with our old life. First of all, in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Kill it, he is saying. This powerful phrase, in fact, suggests that we're not simply to suppress it and control it, these evil actions and attitudes, but we're to wipe them out, completely exterminate the old way of life, right? If you have insects or mice in your home, what are you going to do? You're going to call Orkin, right? And what is Orkin going to do? He's going to get rid of every single insect and mouse. So that's what he's saying to us. It makes it very clear that, that what's being undertaken must be taken quite seriously with a sense of urgency. Paul is saying, mortify it, slay it, slay it now, do it now, do it resolutely. Think about it. If a person who works uh, with machines, Gloria, <laughs> your expression, I'm sorry. <laughs> she, didn't, she didn't like it in the first service. <laughs> but just say that your hand, your fingers get caught in this machine. And if you know if you don't do anything about it, you're going, your whole body is going to be flattened very quickly. So what does that person do? He, he, he grabs the axe close by and he cuts off his hand to save his life from death. That is the idea here for us to understand that our sins, we must deal with it. We must kill it. We must make, see the urgency of it. But not only does he say kill it, he says in verse 8, now you must put them all away. We must throw it off. 
We must take it off. Here is the imagery is putting off clothes. Throw it, strip it off as a filthy shirt. Or if your shirt is on fire, take it off quickly before it harms you, right? Before it burns you thoroughly. Kill it, take it off. Again, we are reminded last week that God had already done this work for us in Christ. Christ has killed it. Christ has thrown it off. So Paul wants us to know this. Count it as absolutely true that Christ has done this, and so act accordingly. Act accordingly to this truth that has been cut off and killed. So participate in that act as well. So we are, we are not people, we are not to live as people who are still bound to sin, when actually we are not. Since we have died with Christ, the reign of sin is broken. Listen to how John Owens says about how we need to do this. He says we must be exercising mortification every day and in every duty. Sin will not die. Remember, the old nature is not dormant, right? Unless it, is, it be constantly weakened. Spare it, and it will heal its wounds, recover its strength. We must continually watch against the operation of this principle of sin in our desires, in our duties, in our calling, in our conversation, in our retirement, in our straits, in our enjoyments, in all that we do. Then he says this, if we are negligent on any occasion, we shall suffer by it. Every mistake, every neglect is perilous. Paul now then turns our attention to those sins that we must kill, that we must throw off. Those desires that move us from God and not towards him. We must recognize the outward sins so that we can determine this issue, not the root issues that are behind our behavioral sins, our outward sins. Paul divides these in two categories. Desire sins, which are more sexual in nature, and disunity sins, which are more relational in nature. Look at verse 5. He says, we are to kill what? These things that are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. These are sins of desire. Here we see that this old life, this old self, the flesh, pursues those sins that are mostly sexual in nature. Paul calls the Colossians to make a decisive break with the sinful tendencies they have carried with them into their Christian lives. So we need to remember the folks that Paul is talking to. He's talking to folks influenced by the Roman region, where recreational sex was quite common practice among their society. And with this first list, Paul brings to mind Leviticus 18, where God outlines to God's covenant people, people that he loves, people that he knows what is best for them, how they are to set apart their lives apart from the pagans as it relates to their sexual relationships. And so in Leviticus, God outlines very clearly what was prohibited, not to, to be prudish, but to protect them, to, to help them to see that, that relationships are important and you need to treat them with honor and respect. So he outlines very clearly who, who you're not to have sex with. Close relatives, a neighbor's wife, same-sex relationships and bestiology. He goes into detail, read it. But we need to understand, for Paul, 
Our sexuality must be shaped by holiness, must be shaped by love, must be shaped by fidelity. Opposed to the Roman's world sexuality, which was shaped by themes of dominance, status, and indulgence. Right? We don't have to go too far and see that even in today's world, thankfully for the Me Too movement, that is exposing how this dominant has been corrupted, how we have corrupted our sexual relationships in ways that are awful. So Paul lists here for us what it looks like to get rid of, to kill. He says sex, sexual immorality, which is a term, Greek term is pornea, which talks about illicit sexual activity, habitual immorality, impurity, moral failures in thought, word, and deed, in passions, lust, uncontrollable desires. Evil desire, he says, this is the loss of emotional control and, and, and that desire then is to meet one's emotional needs in inappropriate sexual ways. Then he moves from there, and then he talks about covenantness. It's funny how that goes together, how we're trying to find our contentment either in sex or in money a lot of times in our society, even in our own lives maybe. But here he talks about covenantness or that leads to greed. It's an inordinate desire to want and have more, a ruthless, arrogant desire for and, and seeking after material things, that persons and things exist for one's own benefit. And he says that leads to idolatry. Both of those leads to idolatry. Why do we that? What is idolatry? It's worshiping other things other than God. Paul is outlaying, he's saying these things, these sexual desires and these and this, this desire for materialism and greed are just a, a behavioral thing that's going on inside your soul that you want something more than God, that Jesus isn't enough for you. And so he's reminding them, no, because you're united in Christ, because as you set your mind on, on the above of what Christ has done for you, you have the power to defeat these sins that are raging in your life. But not only these type of sins, we also see sins of disunity. Look at verse 8. He says to us, now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Here we see more results of living the old life, the fleshly life. In this, it deals with our relationships with one another in the church. Right? He's talking to Christians here. And he said, our talk should not be one of anger or rage, extreme outburst of anger. Or of malice, right? Vicious character assassination, trying to cause harm to another, enjoying sinking someone in emotional pain. We should not be about that. Or slander, speaking falsely against another for the benefit of yourself. Or filthy language. This is not saying just a bad word, but it's using your foul mouth in a way that it's abusing the other person. Or lying. Our life should not be one of lying. Stop lying, he says. You don't do that to people that you have fellowship with. Then in verse 11, we see um, something that, that Paul infers about racism and elitism, right? Here he mentions various groups which re reflect distinctions of national privilege, Greek or Jew, or legal or ceremonial, ceremonial standing, circumcised or uncircumcised, and then one of culture, barbarian, Scythian, folks who do not speak Greek and then social, slave or free. You need to understand, as, as many of these people are represented in the church, different ethnic groups, different societal groups, different cultural groups, some were considered pretty, pretty 
pretty bad. Scythians and barbarians were not, did not have a good reputation, but yet Paul is addressing, no, you cannot let who you are define how you relate to one another. Because ultimately, Christ is in you, and Christ is in your brother and sister in Christ. Christ is a unifying factor in your relationship, so we should not be talking to one another in these ways. One of the beautiful movies, I think, portray this idea of breaking down the barriers as you're united as one is the movie Remember the Titans. Remember Anybody remember that movie? It's about a... A high school, two high schools that are merging together in Alexandria, Virginia. It's based on a true story. A predominantly black school and a predominantly white school are joining together to be one school during the time of desegregation. And it shows beautifully, yet realistically, how when you drink, joining the African-American community and the white community, how that had, had make some negative impacts on them at first. Where, the, where some of the white football players, that they come together, it was predominantly based on a football team as they learned to, to grow together as a team. And Denzel Washington played the, um, the coach of the team. And it showed how he tried to get them to break through those barriers where one of the first scenes is where he had a, uh, one of the African-American football players housed with a white football player and how they had to learn to work through their differences, how to work through their issues. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. It's a beautiful story as you're united but behind one vision to bring about uh, change, and we saw change take place, even though how hard it was to work through their differences, through hate and, and through filthy language of calling one another, but yet God, not God, but what God did, I think, work in there, and maybe they didn't know that, but, <laughs> um, but for us to take that as, as an as a illustration for us, as we are in Christ, Christ is in all, right? We are able, by his grace, to speak in ways, which we'll learn about next week, towards one another, but not filled with hate and anger and rage and malice and slander. That should not represent one who belongs to Christ. See, if these things, desires of your sin desires and your sins of disunity, if they are category, are they, if they are category, categorizing you, then he gives us a stern warning in verse 6. What does he say? He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. These sins will occur the wrath of God. How? Is it we reap what we sow and never escape the consequence of our sin? Or is it this? It has eschological meaning. And what do I mean by that? This idea is coming. God, Paul, the Bible often uses in the New Testament this coming to refer God's coming judgment when Jesus will come again to judge sin, finally. See, our God is a jealous God. God loves his people, but he must deal with sin. God will undo evil at the final judgment by destroying it once and for all and will reward goodness by establishing it. Paul, in this passage, appeals to their formal life of the Colossians and to us today. Well, someday, someday we'll be destroyed in judgment by God. Not that we will be destroyed, but our sins will be destroyed. Wrath is not God's way of personal vindictiveness, but instead it's, it's a way of God's eliminating all that opposes his will for his creation. Once and for all, that old nature will be finally dealt with, 
It will be cut off. It will no longer affect us anymore. That is our hope that we have in his coming again. So we need to keep this in mind. God's wrath is coming upon the sins of desire and disunity. Therefore, Christians, we need to put them to death and lay them aside. In fact, he even encourages them in verse 7. These are things that you once walked. You were once living in them. See, Paul is encouraging and say, hey, this no longer has to be your story. Because of Christ and the union you have with Christ, that belongs to the past. And as a Christian, you have, you have, done, away, you have done away with this kind of life. See, these repulsive habits are, no longer need to represent you. These characteristics are those who do not know God and do not have a relationship with him. Many years ago, I, when I was planning the church, we got involved with an organization called Helping Up Mission. It's a mission organization in Baltimore City that reaches out to those who are homeless, but those who are dealing with a variety, a variety of addictions. And I got to meet a man a very successful businessman, a man who had a family, a million dollar home, but he himself now was in the Helping Up Mission due to his pursuit of sex and drugs. That destroyed him, destroyed his family, destroyed all that he had. But as I began to hear his story, the good news is that he began to recognize what has happened. He will never get back his wife. That has been blown. But God is at work restoring him and renewing him as he kills and begins to deal with those root issues behind his pursuit of his addictions. Many of you may not be, may experience that radical desire for those type of things, but all of us are at war. And the good news for us is that in verse 10 that reminds us that we have hope for change. If you're wrestling with these kind of things, if you're in Christ, you have hope for change. Believe me, I'm not naive enough to, to, to not to realize that we as people are tempted and we often give in to temptations in these ways that are listed in Paul's passage here. But I want us to remind us that we do have hope for change. Look at verse 10, it says, having put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. See, our new life in Christ does not decay. God daily makes us like Jesus Christ. It is his ongoing process that God does in us so that we can put off these sinful desires. You see, our Father in heaven, our Savior Jesus, and his Spirit delight to transform us and living out our new life in Christ, which we'll look at next week. But the question for us to ask this morning, as we understand that we do have hope for change, we need to acknowledge that there are things in our life that we must deal with, sin that we still wrestle with. So the question I want to ask you and ask me, what are those things that are distracting you? What are those things that are entangling you? What are those sins that you need to put off and kill and throw away? See, as you look at the outward wrestling of your life, the behavioral things that you see, there's something greater going on in your heart. 
There's something behind that lust. There's something behind that greed. There's something behind that anger. There's something behind that discontentment that only God himself can meet. That is why Paul is always helping us focus on Jesus. Until we find our rest in Jesus, we will go after other things. So the question for us, what are those things that we're going after? And when we don't get, that we cause this kind of behavior. Let me give you an illustration in my own life. Early on in my marriage life, both Val and I have been Christians for many years, and then we got married. She would ask me very important questions, very um, essential questions about finances. And when she would ask me questions about finances, I would get defensive. I would say unkind things back. And she would be like confused because her questions were very right. They were good questions to ask. But I was like, why am I responding in that way? Why am I being defensive when she asks very basic questions about our finances? I, need to I had to figure out how to kill that. I had to figure out how to throw that away. And as I did that, I, I began to understand that the reason why I was responding the way that I was responding is because I was finding my identity and how well or how poorly I was doing the budget or how I was handling my finances. And so when she would ask questions about finances and I felt if I didn't feel secure about it, then I would respond defensively and at times unkindly. What I needed to remind myself that I, my identity is not in how well or how poorly I handle my finances, my ultimate identity is in Christ. And so when I understood that more deeply and when Val began to ask questions continually about our finances, I was able by God's grace and through the work of his spirit as he was transforming me to respond in more kind ways and not defensive ways. Now, have I arrived? Have I arrived? Have you arrived? No. It's a lifelong process. But we have our Savior who is actively working with us through his spirit to help us to kill and to throw off. As we have seen last week, we are people united to Christ who need to daily gaze upon Christ in order to be and live holy. See, the more we gaze upon the person and work of Christ, we are able by his spirit to put off this old life and fight the flesh that wars within us. Again, remember, Jesus died, rose again, ascended, and will return so that you may and do have victory over that sin that still reigns in our own nature. So friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, kill it, throw it away. He gives you grace upon grace to walk by faith and reflect his beauty more and more. Yes, you're not alone in the war to pursue holiness. Listen to how Chris Lungard brings the illustration from the book Moby Dick and Captain Ahab. He says this, Captain Ahab, Ahab was driven by his rage to chase the whale to the end. The flesh is quite, is just as driven and will wish its lip, let me do that again, and will with its last breath spit at God. 
But there is in us a, listen to this, a warrior, just as committed to the flesh's destruction. The Spirit of Christ wars against the flesh, and filled with the Spirit of Christ, empowered by God's love of us and our love for him, we turn on the flesh with our captain's own curse, which says this, Towards thee I roll, thou all-destroying but unconquering flesh. To the last I grapple with thee. From heaven's heart I stab at these. For love's sake I spit my last breath at thee. O Father, O Son, O Holy Spirit, God, three in one, give us that grace to spit out our flesh and say, no, I no longer want that way of life, but I want the life that resides in me in Christ, knowing that we have a God who's committed, more committed to transforming us more and more into you than we are. But Father, help us to catch up with that. Help us to, to spit at the flesh and to look at Jesus, who is the one who gives us help, who gives us strength, who does that work of transforming us more and more so that we would reflect Christ more and more to the world which justly needs to see it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And let us sing of that help. <laughs>